It was um, 1968, and I was in, I think, seventh grade, maybe eighth grade. I was doing my um, catechismal class at my home church in Nebraska, uh, going through the confirmation uh, process. Um, it was something we did back in those times, and my church, I'm the guy on the right, if uh, you have a hard time figuring that out. And when this picture was taken, I, by, by this time, I knew that I wanted to go into full-time uh, ministry. And um, though I knew that if you're going to go into full-time ministry, you needed to go to college, and then you needed to go on to seminary. The college part was easy. I was born a Nebraska Cornhusker. I will die a Nebraska Cornhusker. Uh, Lincoln was where I was going. But seminary was a, another matter. My home church was part of a, a small denomination that had one seminary located in Chicago, Illinois. And what it made, made it a little more difficult was one of the professors at that seminary was from my home church in Nebraska. And so there was kind of this maybe expectation that you know, Mark will probably go to Chicago for seminary. But I had another option given to me by the guy on the left. That's Pastor Roger Trotman, our young pastor back in this little church in Nebraska who was teaching our catechismal training. And um, I'll never forget him saying, the best seminary to go to is Dallas Theological Seminary. And that stuck into my head. Um, he was a godly man, uh, a gifted man, and a man that I trusted. And I was kind of put here in a dilemma. Do I go to Chicago? Do I go to Dallas? Um, it was without a doubt one of the most important decisions I was going to make. It was going to determine really the course of my life in many ways. Actually, it wasn't that hard of a choice. I chose Dallas, as did, I think, about five other pastors and leaders here at Fellowship Bible Church. But it wasn't a hard choice because I knew Pastor Trotman. I trusted him. Um, he had taught me uh, my confirmation class. I had meals in his home. I played ball in his backyard. Um, we spent time together. I, I knew him. I, tr I had a relationship with him. I trusted him. And when he said Dallas Seminary, um, that was it. Because he said it, and I trusted him, that's where I went. I had a relationship with him. If you think about it, most of the important decisions that we make in life come down to a matter of trust. The person you said, I do, and married um, was a matter of, of trusting that they loved you. The mechanic that you take your car to, hopefully you do so because you trust them. The doctor that you see, you go to because you trust her or him. Um, the daycare that you drop your kids off, you do so because you trust them to take care of your child. The church that you attend, like Fellowship Bible Church, you come here because you trust the leadership here. There's um, a sense of trust in making our decisions. And to the degree that you know someone, you will trust them. In fact, the more intimate the knowledge, it seems, the, 
the deeper that trust goes. In the 8th century B.C. in ancient Israel, there was a crisis of trust that was taking place. Isaiah the prophet, for 60 years, confronted that crisis of trust to remind God's people, hey, there's your God. Trust Him. We've studied this book of Isaiah now for about a year, and I want to walk us through some some reminders and passages of that. For instance, let's start in chapter 7. King Ahaz, chapter 7, verse 1. King Ahaz was facing a crisis of trust. Verse 1, now came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. And when it was reported to the house of David, saying that the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as trees of the forest shake with the wind. And then verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now out to meet Ahaz and take your son Sherejashuv at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, Take care, be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted." Because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, son of Remalia. Don't worry. But he warned Ahaz in verse 9, this very important, last part of verse 9, this very important truth. If you will not believe, if you don't trust, you surely will not last. The NIV puts it this way, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. It was a crisis of trust. Who are you going to trust, Ahaz? And sadly, King Ahaz was one of the wicked kings in the history of Israel. And he chose to ignore Isaiah's call to trust God. And he trusted himself. He trusted his, his other false gods. Now, Ahaz had a son whose name was Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the good kings. But he also had a crisis of trust in his reign. Uh, turn with me to chapter 36 of Isaiah. Chapter 36. Now it came about in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Yep, the same place that his father Ahaz had his crisis of trust. Now Hezekiah is having his crisis of trust. Verse 3, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shevna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. And Rebshekah said to them, say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. And then he said this, now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? The New King James Version says, now on whom do you trust? Whom do you trust? But this time, King Hezekiah, the godly king, expressed his trust in God. Jump over to the next chapter, chapter 37, and verse 15. 
Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And he said, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, and, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, and so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from the hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know. You alone, Jehovah, Yahweh, Lord, you alone are God. And if you remember when we studied this passage, God miraculously delivered Judah and Jerusalem. And 185,000 of, of uh, Sennacherib's army were destroyed, and Hezekiah did nothing. In a miraculous way, God delivered the people. He answered Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah trusted in his moment of need. He trusted in God alone. Sadly, though, Hezekiah was kind of alone in that. Most of the people that he was king over um, had this propensity, it seemed, to always, by default, uh, in a moment of crisis, uh, trust something else. They just really didn't know their God well enough. And when push came to shove, it was this idol or that idol or trying to make this alliance with that nation and, and figure out and solve their own problems. And so Isaiah, that prophet for 60 years that God used in that 8th century B.C., Isaiah comes and addresses and confronts that idolatry, like in chapter 42. They shall be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. Or in chapter 45, they will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Chapter 46, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale. They hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and they bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it up on the shoulder, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It doesn't, doesn't move from its place. And though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Or in chapter 44, Isaiah confronted and said, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and they're precious things are of no profit, even if their own witnesses fail to see and know, so that they will be put to shame. You see, the key question that Isaiah was asking over and over and over again is who are you going to trust? Who will you trust? And over and over again, Isaiah reminds Israel, God alone. God alone is the worthy one. There, there, is, there is no one else to trust. There is no other God. He stands alone. He is our God. There is no other. And over and over again, Isaiah has to remind Israel, this is the God you trust. This is who he is. This is what he's done. This morning, I want to take some time and just read through some of these passages that we've seen already. 
You can follow along in your scriptures if you like, or just sit there and listen. Hear the word of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Get yourself on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. His arm will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or who is his counselor that has informed him? With whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Look, behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing, meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for an idol, a craftsman crafts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that won't rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not toler. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they planned. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, and he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom, then, will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Chapter 41, verse 1. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. Let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues the king. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety, by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed it and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am he. The coastlands have seen, and they're afraid. The ends of the earth, they tremble. They have drawn near. They've come. Each one helps his neighbor. And they says to his brother, Oh, be strong. And to the craftsman who encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with a hammer, encourages him who beats with the, on the anvil. And he says of the soldering, Oh, it is good. He fastens it with nails so that it will not totter, these, these idols that they're making. Verse 8, But you, 
Israel my servant, Jacob whom I have fashioned, descendant of, of Abraham my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the remotest parts, and you said, and I said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Look, behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing. They will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you won't find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord, your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. I'm your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 42, verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I'm the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine, and when you, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you're precious in my sight, and since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. So do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, and everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Jump down to verse 10. You're my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand I am he. Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord. And there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Even from eternity I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act. Who can reverse it? Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon. 
and I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Chapter 44, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the streams of water. And this one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will, will call out in the name of Jacob, and, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the things that are, are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Is there any other rock? I know of none. Chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, Jehovah. There is none other. And besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and, it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no one else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright, so gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about the wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God, a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, and every tongue 
will swear allegiance, and they will say to me, only in Jehovah, Yahweh, are the righteousness and our strength. And men will come to him, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Jump over to chapter 28, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I have called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. And surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. And when I call to them, they stand together. You see, Isaiah understood this very simple principle. To the degree you know someone, you'll trust them. And, and Israel was facing a crisis of trust. They had forgotten their God. They shouldn't have. Prophet after prophet, the Holy Scriptures over and over, even a godly king, Hezekiah. But they had forgotten God. They did not know the Lord. And then the place of the Lord came their own sinful heart, idolatry. And Isaiah knew that the antidote to idolatry was knowing him. Israel, here is your God. Here he is. This is who he is. This is what he's done. You know, every day, and, and probably multiple times during our day, we all have a certain maybe crisis of trust. Who are we going to trust in this moment, in this situation? Do we look to our own resources? Do we push the panic button, begin to stew and worry and fret, seize control, fall into the, the trap of idolatrous thinking? I, I, I've got to figure this out. I've got, to, I've got to solve this dilemma. Putting our confidence in our own ingenuity, our own human resources, our own cleverly devised plans, or in God's gracious provision and power. Every day, it's, it's who, who are we going to trust? God told ancient Israel, I am the Lord, your God. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Savior. I'm the one who loves you. I formed you. I created you. I fashioned you. You're mine. There's no God besides me. Have I not spoken it? Have I not declared it? Have I not planned it? I will do it. I am the king. There is no other. And so the depth of our spiritual life depends on the depth of our understanding of God. Shallow views of God make shallow Christians every time. I want to just take a moment and illustrate this. I think in a great passage in the New Testament of, of something in the life of Jesus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. You know the story, well, Luke chapter 9, it's the feeding of the 5,000. I love the way Luke records this. Luke chapter 9, verse 12. Luke 9, verse 12. Now, the day was ending, and the 12 came and said to him, Jesus had been teaching the multitudes, thousands and thousands of people, 
and the day is ending, and the twelve come to him and say, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countrysides and find lodging and get something to eat, for this is a desolate place. And, and you know what they're saying. Their stomachs are growling profusely, and they're saying, good night, when are you going to stop talking? I haven't had a bologna sandwich for two days. Uh, why don't you send the people away? And they, they're hungry. They can find a place to eat. And then Jesus shocks them by saying this statement in verse 13. You give them something to eat. <laughs> what? 5,000 people, add, uh, men, add another 5,000 to 8,000 women and children, you know, 10, 15,000 people on the hillside? You give them something to eat. And their response, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. And what are the disciples doing? Let's look, well, look at here. What do we have for resources? Five loaves and two fishes? Who are you kidding? I mean, we don't even have enough money. How are we going to solve this problem? What do you mean you feed them? I think Jesus is wanting to get his disciples to realize how utterly helpless they are in that moment. It's a crisis of trust. Who you go to trust, guys? The amazing thing is, in the context, they have already seen Jesus cast out demons. In the previous paragraph or so, he raises Jairus' young daughter who had died. They were there a couple paragraphs before when he calms the, the storm at sea on the Sea of Galilee. And here he's telling them, you feed them. And what do they do? So typical, so typical in our default thinking. Well, yeah, what do I have to, how can I do this? God so oftentimes places us in situations that are so impossible for the express purpose that we will say, feed them? I can't. Oh, but, but you can. You can. Placed in impossible situations to force us to ask the question, who are you going to trust? What impossible situations have you recently found yourself in? Maybe in this last week. Where has Jesus said to you this last week, you feed them putting you in a situation where it's like, what? I, how, how do I get out of this? He's calling us maybe to love an unlovable roommate or, or spouse. I can't. He calls us to, to tithe when, quite frankly, it just doesn't look like we have the resources to do it. I can't. He calls us maybe to befriend that coworker who would be the last person on our list to befriend. It's not so much I can't, I won't. <laughs> it's interesting that a few verses later here in chapter 9, just a few verses later, Jesus asks his disciples, so who do you say that I am? Verse 20, wow. What a great time to ask that all-important question. Who do you say that I am? And depending on how we answer that question is going to determine whether we're going to live a life of dependency upon a sovereign and gracious God 
or depend on our own wit and pitiful circum uh, abilities to solve our own situations. Who do you say that I am? Now, I want to close here and wrap this up. I, I want to suggest some trust builders. So how can, we, how can we build this sense of trust and know our God? I want to suggest four things to build our trust. Here's the first one. Creation. <laughs> Remember Psalm 19? The heavens are telling the glory of God. Their, their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Take, go out to Blandy Farms and take a walk and just marvel at creation. Go to, when, in the spring when it's a little nicer and the, and the blooms are coming up, go to the Museum of the Shenandoah Valley in town and walk among the gardens. Look at the colors. I, you know, I, I, walk down Skyline Drive somewhere. Take a drive. And as we do, Consider what God has done. The creation is pouring forth speech. Great is our God. He made me, says the little ant. He fashioned me, said the, the mighty stars in expanse. A few years ago, a number of us here at Fellowship went to a, a series of lectures, two-day lectures at uh, Patrick Henry College down in Percival on science and faith. And one of the speakers was the famed and brilliant um, Oxford professor, now emeritus, uh, Dr. John Lennox. Two earned PhDs, one in mathematics, one a PhD in philosophy. Google him. I mean, f just an amazing man. And he's talking about the expanses of the universe and different things and the intricacies and the design and how God, I mean, it was way over my head. So I, the, the one critique I would have is they should have had a, kind of like a coloring book for me. So <laughs> as they taught, I could color. And then he stopped like in the middle of his lecture. And I, I think it was what everyone in that room wanted to do. And he said, people, it's time to worship God as you see the intricacies of all that he had been explaining. How can you not stop and say, great is our God? Creation. Louis Giglio has written a book. He's with Passion Conferences. Louis Giglio has, has written a book entitled Indescribable. So parents, it's, this is for you. To, to, you should get it and read it to your kids. It's, it's um, devotionals about science and different things of the universe and creation, and then he brings a, uh, uh, an amazing fact down and, and directs it to God who, who designed it. Indescribable is our God. Hey, here's a second thing, a trust builder. Fellowship. Togetherness. Psalm 105 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. Now, there's times in our life where we just get our eyes onto our situations and off of God. It's so easy to do. I mean, again, on any given day, any given week, who we go to trust. And sometimes we just need somebody who's a friend to ask us that question. 
a number of years ago when I was going through a certain particular personal struggle. I poked my head into John Morrison's office one day and kind of unloaded, and, and John simply said, so where, where do you see God showing up in this? God? Like, what, what has He got to do with the situation? He's got everything to do with the situation. I'd just forgotten it. We need each other. We need each other to point us like Isaiah was pointing the Israelites. Look, here is your God. We're not meant to be alone in this thing called the Christian life. So get involved in a small group. Go to something where you have fellowship together, a group of women, a group of men, couples together or whatever. Because there's always times in our life the crisis of trust occurs and there will be always times when we just need to get nudged by someone and say, so, so where is God in this? Thirdly, let me mention biographies. <laughs> the Hebrews chapter 13, 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Read a Read a, a biography of, of a great missionary, J. Hudson Taylor or Jonathan Goforth or Amy Carmichael. Read, read how God met their needs in their struggles. It's, it's life-giving to our souls. Read a biography. Read what God has done with the great saints of the past, Christians from days gone by who accomplished incredible things because they learned they had an incredible God. Someone after the first service said, you should have also included poetry. Moi? <laughs> poetry. I mean, the, the arts. Singing and worship on, a, on the Lord's Day. Let me mention the fourth, but far probably the most important. Alone time, you and God. Just you and God. Where the Holy Spirit will take His Word, and as you talk and converse together in prayer, He, he whispers to us through His truth, Mark, here I am. I'm your God. I love you. I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Savior. I'm your King. Have I not said it? Will I not perform it? You can trust me in your crisis of trust. Time alone with God to remind us this is my God. I finished that I finished that catechism class 50 years ago and uh, was given my confirmation Bible. I still have it. In fact, the other day I took it out and was looking at it. And inside the front cover of that confirmation Bible was the words that Pastor Trotman had written, some kind words. And, and then he wrote this, may this just be the beginning of a life of study in God's Word, 2 Timothy 
may this just be the beginning of a life of study. You know, over the past 50 years since I was awarded that Bible, I have probably spent thousands of hours studying the Bible. And I think I can say I feel like I'm maybe just beginning to scratch a little bit of an understanding of the infinite God. Because we can never come to a point where we say, I think we've got this God thing figured out. You know, right here. I'm sticking right here in that box I'm going to make. The infinite God. We never, never stop learning of who God is and what He's done. And we never, must never stop trusting. He is our God. Behold. It was Hosea, the contemporary of Isaiah, living in that same dark period of time. I want to close with something Hosea said in Hosea chapter 6. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Indeed, let us press on to know Him. Let's pray. So, Father, we want to first of all say thank you for revealing yourself to us. You have communicated to us your word is the words of life. It's your self-revelation. It's your love letter to us. This is where we find you, where we learn of your, your sovereign dealings with your gracious ways, your compassionate heart. This is where you speak through the power of your Holy Spirit. This is the way walk ye in it. This is who I am. You can trust me. And Father, so many times it seems like in spite of all the maybe years of, of learning and, and rehearsing who you are, there, we so often hit a crisis of trust and we can be so easily like the Israelites led astray to an idolatrous type of thinking that default thinking that says, hmm, maybe I can figure it out. And so, Father, forgive us. May we press on, Lord, to know You, the wonderful, sovereign Lord that You are, our personal God. May we press on in Your power and in Your strength. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.